Silver McLeod, Tongan-born, met and married an Australian electrician, despite disapproving looks for some of her fellow Tongans. Silver's endured and has written a warts-and-all account of her life, her love, her triumphs and her grief, fulfilling a fantasy to become a Virgin Australia 777 captain, urged along by her ailing husband, Ken. His dying wish was that she might be able to support their two daughters after he passed away from multiple myeloma. It's a great human interest story, and Graham confesses it brought him to tears. He spoke to Silver recently about her book that launches this week. Silver, welcome to Travel Writers Radio. Thanks, Graham. Glad to be here, and thank you for your interest. Silver, I have to tell you, you reduced the grown man to tears with your book. Sorry, that wasn't the intention. Well, you did a good <laughs> job of uh, whether it was or, or wasn't. You really, you've got your heart on your sleeve a bit with this book, Silver. You, you give us the good news, the bad news, and everything in between. And it'll become apparent in a minute why I would be reduced to tears by a book that you'd written. But it's, uh, you've really told the whole story, haven't you? I have, and I wanted to capsulate the whole thing rather than snippets here, snippets there. So I just hope it did it justice, and I didn't mean it to be like a sad book. It's it's just the way it is, and I think it is such a common thing, and it will touch everybody. Um, we all share these triumphs and grief and love and and all that so I just hope that I brought it all together to one place I think you and, did uh, I, I could actually see a television show out of this not not a reality <laughs> series I mean just a just a plain old telly movie about you know somebody from a relatively quiet village life in in another country uh, who makes it to the top of, of a chosen profession um, in a larger country like Australia. Tell me a little bit about Tonga. You um, you obviously were born there and grew up there, but it's not one island. I didn't know how many it was. I think it's like 296 islands or something like that, isn't it? <laughs> well, Tonga consists of 169 islands. Well, I knew I had only some 36, numbers right. Yes. <laughs> 36 of them are the only islands that are inhabited. And it's divided into three main groups. The most northern one is Baba'u group. That's where I come from. Yes. And then the middle one is the Hapai group. And the southern part is Tongatapu, which is the main island where international flights goes to. Nugalofa, the main yeah. capital. Okay. Correct. Okay. And um, so you were there right through your teenage years, as I understand it. But one day you met a bloke and I say bloke because he was an Aussie, who uh, had come over there to help build a hospital. And uh, this is where your story uh, sort of starts, isn't it? Yes. I wanted the book to be like a tribute to my late Ken. Yep. And I wanted to tell the story from when we met, uh, how he brought me to Australia and how I navigate myself through his world. And then the flying part of it, you know, which I always say, it's my meeting with Ken gave birth to my flying. He, gave, so he was the wind one, beneath your wings. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. 
without Ken, there wouldn't be a story to tell. But that's where the book is. Until you read it, you can see where I came from. And lots of people sort of thinking because of the title, it's all about flying. I like to showcase that it was the love that I had with Ken. Uh, He came to Tonga as an electrician building a hospital. Once again, that's like the love of Australia to my little island who, you know, help us with a very much needed hospital and Ken happened to be the electrician and that's how we met. Right. Now, you, it, throughout the book, you go into italics, which is basically your thought process, isn't it? Yes, Did the, of how I felt. Yeah, but you might have, you might have a bunch of dialogue and then, and then suddenly there'll be italics. Did the publishers suggest you did it that way? No. You just did it that, that way? That was all my way. I okay. verbalised my thoughts. Yeah. And, and I must admit, when I was writing, the very first editor who read my raw manuscript rang up and said, is this is a fiction or non-fiction? <laughs> then I started to laugh and I said, it's crazy, isn't it? But it is my life. But it gave me that little tiny little hope that perhaps my story worth telling The best thing I found with Exile, nothing was changed. I can read it a thousand times and it still reduced me to tears a thousand times. Well, there you go. It got you like it got me. (laughs) Because I relived those moments. Sure. So it's an interesting story. The first 20 years of your life is really island life, isn't it? You've pretty much yes. stayed in Tonga, is that, is that correct? You yep. didn't go to New Zealand? I stayed or right Fiji in, or? no. I right. was in Vavao. I went through my high school in a Catholic boarding school throughout until I finished year 12, graduated with my HSC. And where else can you go from there? There was no university in Tonga. Unless you are somebody, you might be able to get help in a form of scholarship to go to Fiji or New Zealand. My family didn't have that status that might enable me to get a scholarship, even though I felt that I was quite okay at school. <laughs> oh, you'd have to be okay to do what you ultimately did. I think you'd have to be pretty good at maths and sciences. Yeah? Yes, yes. Yeah, Thank okay. goodness for those. Otherwise, I would never sit in a cockpit of a triple seven at the end. No, you know? no, no. So. That's, that's great. Now, I, I do see, and I don't, um, forgive me if, I, if I'm wrong here, but you seem in the, in the thought bubbles that you have throughout the book, yep. you seem to have a lack of confidence early in the piece. Would that be 100%, unfair? 100%, yes. You, you, I you, think the self-doubt, but I think that's something from growing up in such a underprivileged primitive. I was never good enough. Right. Uh, Regardless. Is this, did you feel this way once you'd met Ken or is this earlier than meeting him that you felt this way? Always, right from a little child. It goes right back when I had that fantasy of aeroplane and yet I could never confide in anyone. Right. And I literally say this in the kindest way to myself, that I was classed as quite the ugly duggling. 
So therefore, you know, the hope of having a white man even look sideways at me was was unfathomable. Right. Is that something uh, that your peers at school, were, were they also looking to um, marry outside of the culture? Or was that yes and sort of no. Maybe it was my thoughts because there were certain things when I was growing up that I vowed that, you know, marrying a Tongan and this might come across it. It might backfire, but you know what, Graham? It is what it is, and it was my fear, it was my thought that I never wanted to because I have seen a, a, a lot of the, oh, how can I make this without sounding harsh? But it is quite common that there has been a lot of domestic violence okay. in our uh, In your culture? Um, yeah, in my okay. culture. And even though it's not accepted, it's like being, you know, shoved under the mat. Like it become normalized, right. should I say. Yeah, I um, the minister will come and have a chat to the family when there is an, you know, domestic happening. Uh, but it happens not behind closed doors. Oh. It does happen outside publicly, even for me growing up, seeing it, because the domestic violence was not where my grandparents lived. I never saw that in there. But I saw it at the school bus, that it put fear in my head that that's what the expected marriage wife should be. And um, maybe in my head I thought white people may not have that very little did I know that now I'm here it's everywhere it does not limit it to a certain race no no I understand and look you you've you've said it in the best way you can in in the book I didn't realize quite the depth of your of your thought process there but no that's perfectly understandable now Ken your Ken I'm I'm going to probably pronounce this incorrectly he's a Palangi yes (laughs) that's that's another word for a white man yeah correct (laughs) yes Um, I think in New Zealand they call it uh, Pakeha yeah Uh, in Tonga is Palangi the interesting thing though when you started to go out with Ken, Ken McLeod, you didn't always get good looks from your local Tongan community, is that right? That is correct, and it's mainly not that don't have good look, it's more like a sneer to say, what am I thinking, you know? Uh, Bear in mind, in my head, I'm the ugly duckling. What do I think of gaining from this courting, this handsome white man? I would never come close. That kind of looks. Right. But but then it goes one step further and some Tongan virtually called you a prostitute when they saw you with your then, I think he was just then your fiancé. Yes. We were in Nukualofa and uh, as I explain in the book, we were in a hotel where we stayed. So we had a babysitter with the kids and we went out to the bar for right. a drink. So it was quite late and... Uh, 
So a you bill were actually came married. Uh, you were married at this point. Correct. Ah, right. Yeah, so, at this yeah, point we were married. Your kids were born yes. after you were married. Yes. Um, yeah. I've jumped ahead, but I, I mean, I think it's yeah. interesting that, you know, at one instance you're being told by uh, others in your culture that you're above, trying to you know, rise above your, your status in life. And then the next thing, they're assuming that you are with this man because you're being paid. You know, for your services. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, pretty, pretty is, uh, ordinary, isn't it? It is, it is. But, but Thinking back he stood up time. for you. I think he was going to knock the bloke's block off, wasn't he? <laughs> well, that was that incident after we were married, you know. Yeah. I haven't been called a prostitute in my island of Vavau. So, because everybody sort of knew us in Baba, yeah. they may have looked and go, oh, what is she thinking dating him? She will never measure up. But it never came out as such, like this incident in Nukalofa, even after years of being married and have kids to go back. And we were fronting up to the bar, just the two of us. Of course, nobody know who I am or who I was. Uh, who Ken was, and that's where that incident happened that really rocked me to the core because it made a horrible taste in my mouth on that oh, holiday that I never forget. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then there were other racist suggestions, like there was the guy who used to call you Gracie, as in Gracie Jones. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know who was Gracie. A, I think <laughs> You're not a model, you're not a singer. You're... <laughs> Well, he probably didn't think he was being racist, but it probably was, right? No, he was just being funny. I think I had this Afro hairdo, oh, and it right. was sort of almost cut flat on the top, oh. I think. I know. you t- Recall in the book how you, you say you had a dream to be a doctor, but the fantasy to be a pilot. And he's really the one who encouraged you to, to go on with that. I mean, you were a checkout chick at one stage during your marriage with, with Ken. Uh, because that was all you could get. You worried about whether your colour was a, uh, an issue in you trying to get a job. He told you, don't think of yourself as a black girl, but you you do refer in the book to yourself as being black. And he, uh, he obviously didn't like you saying that, right? No, he did not. He always said that it's in my head. And he was probably right. You're a woman but. of colour, there's no question about that. But but why was it that he was so encouraging of you to be an airline pilot, given that it would probably take you away from him for extended periods? Well, the fantasy to be a pilot was something that I confided in him while we were still courting, before we were even married. Right. It was mentioned once. I think I was in my weakest moment when I actually confided because he looked trustworthy. He looked like I can tell him my innermost secret and he won't laugh at it. So uh, when we were sharing our dreams as young couple, you know, just courting, I told him that I have a fantasy to fly aeroplanes. Of course, I was waiting for the mocking laugh. It never happened. Uh, instead, he, you know, amongst other things, he was saying, oh, I thought you might want a family. And I said, family comes naturally. That's not mm. a dream. It mm. it will happen. The dream to be a doctor, which I think it can be achievable, maybe, because by this stage, I have heard of female doctors in Tonga, 
Tongan doctors, but never heard of a pilot. So that's why a reason I would never say. There was not that I wish there was someone I can look up and say, oh, wow, she was a pilot. I would like to be like her. No, it was a total, total fantasy. So anyway, Ken turned around and said, well, it can be done. There shouldn't be a time frame for that. And then the moment passed and it was never mentioned again until 12 years later, he got diagnosed with his illness and it came up again. That's his weakness. That's his weakest moment, right? Mm. He said, do you still want to fly? And that's where it came about. But I have a belief in me that he thought he was going to die and he wanted to fulfill whatever dream or wish I have, and in doing so, I may be able to look after our kids because he was just coming on to his 40th birthday. Our kids were still little. I believe that he thought he was going, at least I'll do something that I really wanted to do and might be able to earn enough to look after myself and our kids alone. I got that impression strongly that he was there really trying to encourage you to do something that would give you what you what you would need for the children. And, uh, I mean, he continued to encourage you through his ups and downs of illness. Now, he had a multiple myeloma, which... Yes. Um, can you just quickly explain what that is and why it's a challenge to deal with? At the time when Ken was diagnosed, that was quite rare. quite rare for someone at his age. Apparently, the oncologist slash hematologist said that that is quite common with older people. It's called an old man disease. It's only quite a handful at Ken's age. So that's literally very similar to leukemia. So leukemia is a deficiency, multiple myeloma, hence multiple. It's the overgrowth of the protein inside the bone marrow, which seems to do the same, have the same effect. Yeah, eventually your bone marrow will malfunction and the rest will be history. Sure. You were both in Tonga and you were also in Australia when this, uh, when various incidents occurred with uh, Ken and his health, right? Yes. So Ken's incident, of course, was diagnosed here in Australia. And uh, we went through all that, and from then on, it was an uphill battle for his health, for us. He even had a transplant of stem cells into the bone marrow. Is is that correct? Yes. And that That helped him for a period? Correct. About 15 years, it brought us time. Yeah. It brought us time, and eventually it reared its ugly head again, and it came over. Now, in between times, you did start with a, uh, as a student pilot, I think, here at Moorabbin. Is that correct? Yes, uh, and that's where Cessna, I started. Right? Yep. And you'd, you'd had a few lessons with an instructor, and then one day he says, you're on your own, and he shut the yes. door and walked away. How well, that moment, <laughs> that moment was a tie-up at Mornington Peninsula. Uh, okay, yep. So uh, at this stage, I, took, I went on to Moorabbin, but my initial, app initial, was at uh, Tyre. Right. And uh, we were, we've been practicing circuits, landing and takeoff, and we came in and it was only about 12 hours I've been learning to fly. And he said, okay, 
take the next taxiway. So I took the next taxiway off and he called, stop here, park the brake. And the next minute he pulled his headset out, opened the door and he's yelling out, you on your own, go for one circuit (laughs) and back. And I, oh, there were a few words, you know. Right. You didn't broadcast those words, I suppose. I know. Then he was gone. So, um, and he was running off. I did my circuit. So I thought, okay, what do I do now? This is what I've been training for. So I taxi on, line up, you do all your appropriate tasks. And I got airborne. And um, I don't think anything. I, I say this all the time, nothing will ever measure up. And I think I can speak for all aviators out there. Nothing will measure up to that moment you being let out solo in right. an aircraft. It was just amazing. I, I was screaming my head off and there was no one there to tell. And yeah, very, very exciting time. Mm. Very proud. There were lots of tears coming. Uh, automatically, when there is a little achievement here in Australia that I've made, I automatically go back to my village, go back to Tonga. You know, what in would be mind, like? What would mean? they think? Yes, in yeah. my mind. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, you didn't just stay flying uh, Cessnas. You moved up to bigger aircraft. I, I was really thrilled to hear that you flew for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Oh, I think of all the flying I have done, that would probably the cream on the cake. I always, as you said, that uh, you read it in the book, I always wanted to be a doctor, never there. And I fantasized to be a pilot and I made it there. And to be of service to Royal Flying Doctor, it's like combined both. Mm. And I absolutely love that job. Captain Silver McLeod told her heartfelt story to Graham Kemlow. Her book, Island Girl to Airline Pilot, is published by Exile Publishing. This is the Travel Writer Show on J Air 88 FM in Melbourne.